And I add my own welcome to Steve's. For those of you here for the first time or only been a few times, it's good to see everyone here. It's good to be together on a Sunday morning. Really, really good. And it's good to have Bibles. We've actually got some church Bibles. So yes, there we are. Jackie's got some Bibles at the back. If you don't have a Bible, I am going to read from the Bible in a, in a minute. And um, it's quite a decent-sized piece of text I'm reading. So it quite, might be quite good to have your own copy. They look like this. And uh, we're on page, I think it's 770, so you can flick that open if you want. Uh, let me just double-check that. We're in a book called Ecclesiastes, which is um, Psalms, Proverbs. So Psalms in the middle of the Bible. And then you get Proverbs, about 31 chapters of that. And then, sorry, no, 670. So Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and we're doing chapter 1. I'll come to that in a minute. But let me say this. I've called this talk this, uh, this morning The Search for Meaning. And I do want us to go on a bit of a quest, like any good quest, like any good treasure hunt. Uh, we'll get the treasure in the end, but we are going to go on a bit of a ramble. There might be some thorns and thistles along the way, a few rocky crags that we might have to negotiate as we go. But I hope that whether we're here as Christians here today, there'll be something here for us to be thinking about when we think about the topic of meaning. But if we're not a Christian, you won't call yourself a Christian. Or perhaps you haven't been to church for a while. You've been invited along by a friend. You've been brought along as a guest. I hope there's something here for all of us to think about as we get into this topic. And can I say that I have 10 copies. There's a lovely little book here, paperback, called Does Life Have Any Meaning? by John Blanchard. And they're at the back. And you can have it for £2. How's about that? It's an honesty thing, so either just stick two pounds in the tray or you can do a contactless donation for two quid. We'll trust you with that one. Take it for yourself, take it for a friend, if that would be useful. So it's a really good little book, highly recommended. So let me just put that there for now. Now let's just get into this, okay? Let me ask you this question. Suppose I asked you, this Tuesday afternoon I said to you, right, what I want you to do is I want you to go and stand outside McDonald's, go up the high street, and I want you to stand outside McDonald's from 2 till 5 p.m. this Tuesday afternoon. Can you do that, please? I suspect that most people here wouldn't until I'd supplied some sort of reason, some sort of meaning, some sort of purpose, some sort of point to it all. You'd say to me, what on earth? Why do you want me to do that for three hours? I haven't got that kind of time. Why do you want me to go and stand outside McDonald's? Now, you would ask that question about a Tuesday afternoon, three hours. It's funny, isn't it? We seem to be living in a cultural moment where if we ask that question about our lives, why are we here? What's the point of it all? Where's it going? What's the meaning? Generally, you sort of get shoulder shrug emoji. Um, I don't, don't really know. Who cares? That's quite a typical response. But I tell you who cares. The writer in the book that we're about to read, the, uh, the teacher in this book called Ecclesiastes. Now, it's a really interesting passage, this, but let me just tell you, it's not like what you might expect from the Bible. You expect the Bible to give us some answers. You expect the Bible to present things to us, helpful things. Give me some clues, give me some help. Teach me, give me good news. 
But here in this passage, the teacher doesn't do that at all. He takes us to school. When you go to a school, when you go to, you know, your first class, a good teacher, a good seminar leader, to get you into the topic, will start asking you some questions. We'll start sort of prodding and poking and saying, what about this? What about that? What about this? What about that? Just to sort of get you thinking. You know, turn everything on, turn the senses on. Start pushing us. And that's what he's going to do here. Um, So let me read it. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And it goes like this. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, all of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And what a cheery word it is. (laughs) A bit like the weather we've had this week. Pretty miserable. Now, can you feel the teacher goading the class? Meaningless. It's pointless. Totally pointless. The big question there in the passage, I've got a slide for this. It kind of hangs on this question. Verse 3, it comes up. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? What's the point? What's the gain? The word there, gain, is like profit. What do I get at the end of the day? At the end of the day, when all's said and done, what's the gain? What's the profit? What's left over? Is there any point to this? Is there any point to my labor and striving? 
In um, 2006, a man in the US broke the world record um, by having his 1,000th piercing, body piercing. And when he was asked, you can imagine it, can't you? I didn't even know where you put them all. When he was asked why he did it, he said, quote, I want to do something useful <laughs> with my life. That's what he said. Now, we might look at a thousand piercings and think, what on earth? What on earth is the point in that? But how about a thousand school runs? Everyone looking forward to the school run this week? How about a thousand days in the office? A thousand days learning a trade? A thousand days in the food bank? A thousand days on the wards? Is there any gain? Is there any point in all those labors? Three typical answers. This is where we're going. Three typical answers that the world usually gives. Here's number one. Yeah, there is. There is gain because I want to leave the world in a better place than I found it. You heard that one? I seem to have got myself involved in a whole run of funerals recently. I've done quite a few. And it is very, very typical in a eulogy for someone to say something basic like this. Oh, we remember so-and-so. They were so fabulous. They left the world a better place than they found it. And that is the main thing. Right? But the teacher in Ecclesiastes wants to say, you can't be serious. Really? Let me read you verses 4 and 11. I've got a slide for this. This is what he says. He says, generations come, generations go, but the earth remains forever. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. Do you see what he's saying? See what he's saying? You've got to face facts. No one's going to remember you, and no one's going to remember your contribution. Nothing you've done will be remembered. One generation comes, one generation goes, but the earth carries on, remains. It continues regardless, unchanged, unchanged. It carries on exactly the same. You've not made it better, and you've not made it worse. It just carries on utterly indifferent. I remember being asked in a talk similar to this. I remember someone asking me, can you tell me who your great-grandparents are? What's their names, they said to me. I was like, um, I don't know. Don't know the names, not even the names of my great-grandparents, do you? And if you know their names, do you know what they did? Now, if you... If you're a Nobel Peace Prize winner or something like that, if you're a Mother Teresa, all right, you know, you might last, your, your legacy and your, uh, your contribution might last longer than 40 years. Or if you're like, I don't know, you're a billionaire, for that, like a Bill Gates, right? Then your legacy might last a bit longer than 40 years, right? But 400 years, it's over, right? In 400 years, no one will be talking about those people. There'll be a footnote in history books somewhere. No one will know who they are, 400 years, let alone 4,000 years. Now, let's push into this a little bit more, because the interesting thing about this is 
since Ecclesiastes, since this book has been written, we've pointed a lot of telescopes into space, haven't we? We've sent up a lot of satellites, huge telescopes, we've looked into space, and we've figured out, right, that life on planet Earth, organic life, that is me, you, living here today, as well as everything else, all the germs and, you know, creepy crawlies and all that, organic life, right, even if it lasts, even if it lasts a billion years, do you listen to these science programs on the radio? I do. And this is so common, you get this. Even if it lasts a billion years, we'll be nothing in cosmic time and history. Nothing in the span of the cosmic history of the universe. It'll be like a footprint in the sand. You know when you walk along the sand by the seashore and you put your foot in the sand, there it is, and then moments later, gone. Now, it's not me saying this, this is just most astrophysicists saying, if you, just, if you just take a look at the history of time, the span of life on planet Earth is going to be minute, tiny. Now that is what the teacher calls, if you like, life under the sun. Did you hear that phrase in our reading? comes up nearly 30 times in the book, comes up three times in the passage that we had. He says, if life under the sun, right, if life, the, as the astrophysicists tell us, if this life here, under the sun, that is, nothing above the sun, right, in his Hebrew mind, he's going, if life under the sun, so nothing above it, no, no heaven, no bigger reality, no God to speak of. There's nothing above it. If life under the sun is all there is, then it is utterly meaningless. It really is meaningless. And, of, and everything we're doing, think about it. Avoiding war, finding vaccines, preserving our climate, really, all of that stuff, in the grand scheme of things, is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. It is meaningless in the end. And if you went up to the teacher, if you went up to the teacher, you know, the guy in Ecclesiastes, and you said, look, the question of our age, the question, the number one question we have to face as a society today, is how we're going to deal with global poverty, or how we're going to deal with a virus, or how we're going to deal with climate change. He would say, are you, are you joking? He would say, the only question, the only question worth asking is, is life under the sun all there is? That is the only question in town. Because if it is, all of that stuff, no matter how much you want to overthink it, will mean nothing. Nothing at all. It's interesting that he posed that question 3,000 years ago, but it's the only serious question asked then and now. It's the only question that matters. But as I said at the beginning, we tend to avoid it. 
Instead, quite often, one way we might look at this, and this is kind of the second way, is we go, okay, it is bleak. Right? If you stare into those telescopes, if you listen to the astrophysicists or the, or the biologists, if you listen to that for too long, it is so bleak that you just go, all right, forget it. Let's not even think about it. Let's just enjoy ourselves. So the second big reason to supply, to live, the second big meaning we might give to our lives is, all right, let's just enjoy it as best we can while we can. Right? They enjoyed life. Just make sure you're a person who enjoys the life you've got. So enjoy music, fall in love, have some kids, see beautiful things, see the world, taste wonderful things, put it all on Instagram, all that sort of thing. Seize every moment. Now that all sounds quite romantic, but once again, the teacher, let me read you verse 14. At the end of verse 14, he says, I've seen all the things. I've seen them all that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. They're chasing after the wind. And then verse 8, I've got verse 8 on the screens. He says, all things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing. And the ear never has its fill of hearing. See what he's saying? This guy was rich. He was a king. He had everything at his disposal. Wealth, people, time. And he's, he's telling you, you will never have enough. right? But it's not just the problem of our appetites. The problem is that you've buried your head in the sand. right? So you see, imagine you're seeing a beautiful sunset. Right? You could appreciate it for a moment. You can say, wow, what an incredible sunset. And then all of a sudden, as you're appreciating it, suddenly the thought comes across your mind. It's totally meaningless. It'll be gone. It's here today, gone tomorrow. It's meaningless. Or you might fall in love. Or you, have a, you listen to a piece of music and it's beautiful. And then all of a sudden you hear the biologist in your ear. You're just a bunch of atoms. This is just a chemical reaction. This is just some electrons flying around in your brain. It's meaningless. He won't let us get away with it. But the best thing I saw on this was from C.S. Lewis. You know Chronicles of Narnia, Lewis? He really nails it. He absolutely nails it with this point. He says, right, if you just bury your head in the sand, you do the whole ostrich thing, right? I can't, I can't deal with the meaning question, so I'm just going to bury my head right, in the sand and just enjoy life. He makes a brilliant point. He says this, if you avoid asking the real questions of why we're here, if you avoid asking those questions, if you just bury your head in the sand like an ostrich, you're switching off the very thing that makes you human. So he goes, animals, they, once they've eaten, reproduced, found a cozy spot, got the warmth, they're fine, they're, they're happy, they're satisfied. But humans, we know we're here. And we're asking questions. We're not satisfied when we've eaten something and we've sat down and had a nice rest. We're, we're conscious 
We know we're here, and we're asking the question, why? Now, if we deny that, if we say, I'm, not, I'm just gonna, I'm not going to answer that question anymore, he says, you're killing your humanity. You're killing the very thing that makes you human. The very thing, the question. If you kill that question, you're killing what makes you essentially different from every other animal around us. So if we stop, if we stop asking why, if we do the whole bury the head in the sand thing, and we just enjoy ourselves, we're actually dying inside. We're losing what it means to be a, to be a person. All right. So then thirdly, you could go, on the one hand, just got to lead a life, leave, leave this planet better than I found it. Or you could say, oh, it's just too bleak. I'll just bury my head in the sand and enjoy stuff. Or the third option. Now, this one, I think, is quite a good one. I actually think there's something quite noble about this one. And it's quite common as well. The third option in search of meaning is to go, okay, life has no meaning. I'll accept the fact, right? I'll stare that in the face and I'll go, I'm just going to live a noble life anyway. I'm going to be courageous. I'm going to do good. I'm going to be productive. I'm going to do all those things anyway. So I'm going to defy the facts. I'm going to be... I, I might even be sacrificially generous, humble, honest, genuine, even in the teeth of reality. So standing atop, Richard Dawkins says, standing on top of the mountain and feeling that cool breeze, he said. You feel that cool, hard breeze of reality and you just step into it and live a good life anyway. Now that sounds brave, doesn't it? Sounds quite brave, sounds amazing, sounds courageous. And you actually get a hint in Ecclesiastes that the teacher had even thought of that one. Let me just read you, it's on the screen, I think I put it on the screen. Let me read you verse 17. So he says, then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom, right, and also to madness and folly but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. Now, what I think he means by madness there is not, you know, I went bungee jumping and skydiving and did rock and roll and everything else. It, it's not that. It's that he decided, I've tried the wisdom route. I've tried to make sense of life. I can't make sense of life. So now I'm just gonna do the opposite. I'm gonna defy wisdom and live in defiance of what I see around me. I'm gonna rebel against it. It's that same sentiment. Even though I know life is meaningless, I'm gonna rebel and live a dignified life anyway. I'm gonna do it that way. Gonna go the folly and madness route. But he says it's still a chasing after the wind because he wants to ask us, why be noble? Why be kind? Why be honest? Why be generous? Why be sacrificial? What's the point in it all? Why be patient and loving? Next um, Saturday is the 20th anniversary of 
And I learned that after that occasion, you'll remember there was 2,753 victims at the World Trade Center. We were actually there a few years ago. We went to see the site and the memorial there. And uh, this coming Saturday, they're going to read every single name that perished on that day out loud in the morning, around about the time that it actually happened on that day. And I, just as I sort of read about this, I learned that um, after the tragedy, the chief medical examiners from the city gathered up the 22,000 fragments of the victims and painstakingly, even the tiny, tiny things, less than an inch long, painstakingly and in a dignified way returned them to their families for a proper burial. Now, where does that sense of dignity come from? Why? Why the determination to do what is right? Why do we want to fill life with meaning? Why do we want to pursue justice? Why do we want to sacrifice and serve? See, the teacher wants to say, wants to push us and say, why? Why do you want to do that? If life under the sun is all there is. Now, conclusion. I told you we were going on a bit of a quest. We've, taken, we've gone around a few brambles. But let me tell you about the Greek philosophers. Okay, so we're talking about 2,000 years ago. Now, this is about 3,000 years, this passage, roughly. Let's talk about, let's come a bit further forward. 2,000 years ago, the Greek philosophers we're asking the very same questions. It is the key question. It is the central question. And they asked it, and they asked it about this thing called the logos, right? So they said, life must have a meaning, and that meaning will come from, like, the logos, right? It's where we get our English word logic, right? There'll be a word, there'll be something that makes sense of life. And if we drop it into place, bang, everything will make sense. The logos, they called it. So just to illustrate this, if you, um, you know, if you came round to my house, right, and I'm trying to make toast, and I say to you, I've been trying to make toast, right, but every time I make it, it comes out all soggy and black and horrible. It's disgusting. What's going on? And you turn around to me and say, it's because you're putting bread in a coffee machine, right? You, you're not using that machine according to its logos, right? That machine was meant to make coffee, not toast. So you've got to figure out the logos of the machine, and then you can use it properly. Right, now they were looking for the logos for life, not to make your toast or your coffee, but for life. They were saying, what's the logos? But none of them really, they discussed it at great length, the great Greek philosophers, but none of them really came to any final conclusion. None of them really got a clear win. But into that, John, the apostle, who knew the man Jesus, he dropped this bombshell. He said, in the beginning was the Logos. And that Logos was with God, 
and that Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. In him was life, and that life was the light, the light of mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That Logos, that word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we've seen his glory. Now, do you see what he's saying? He's talking about a person, right? The philosophers were talking about an idea, like an idea that we might, if we, if we think the right things, stuff will fall into place. And then John comes along and goes, no, it's a person. It's this one and points to Jesus. He's it. He's the logic. And if you look at that person, suddenly everything falls into place. Suddenly, I'm a person, says Jesus, who's made in the image of God. And not only that, it goes so much further, not only that, but this logos, this reason for who I am, this person loves me so much and loves humanity so much that he gave his life, that he died. The logic of the universe died for the sake of his subjects, for us. And then, once that sinks in, once you slot that into place, bang, everything is now full of meaning. So every effort we make to relieve suffering, every effort we spend raising our children, our work, our appreciation of beauty, even a three-minute, even a three-minute conversation on the bus. You know, a three-minute conversation on the bus, you might have a three-minute conversation this week on the bus. In the world of the Ecclesiastes, and the teacher who'd say that is completely pointless, don't waste your time. In the world of Jesus, it could make every bit of difference. You might be talking about that conversation in three billion years. Because in that conversation, you said something. You spoke something. You shared something of the Logos who loves and serves and died for you and me. If you share that, you might be sharing stories of that conversation in three billion years. And so with Jesus, the logic of the universe, you go from nothing, total meaninglessness, to everything full of meaning. So let me close with this. Let me just ask two questions and I'm done. If you're not a Christian, and you're here as a guest, or you're listening to the talk on the live stream, wrestle with this. The teacher wants to push you. Ecclesiastes wants to push you. Your life, our life, life under the sun, is utterly meaningless, and we have to reckon with that. Right? We can't trifle around and dodge it and just fudge it with pithy answers that you might get. He just exposes the whole thing, and we have to reckon with that. But if we're Christians here, how much have we lost? Right, brothers and sisters? How much have we lost that sense 
of significance that Jesus puts into everything when he fills his rightful place as the logic of everything. Don't slide into that thinking of going, oh, do you know what? It's just about having a good life. It's about making the world a better place. It's about, you know, defying this and that and the other. <gasps> no. Everything is full of meaning. And those are the two poles. And there's nothing in between. You either don't have it, and your life and everything we do is utterly, utterly pointless, or you get it, the logic slides into place and our life is full of meaning. Should we allow those questions just to ring out? And we'll say a prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, we pray to you this morning that things said here, though it touches a nerve sometimes when we think about these things deeply, that the Lord Jesus would slake that deep thirst of the soul and fill our lives with meaning and purpose and gain that all our labors and striving and all the sacrifice and hardship and difficulty would be worth something because Jesus is the logic of the universe. Lord God, may it fill us with hope afresh this morning and give us great drive this week to live for him. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.